Episode 61 The garlic chives peek out behind the plastic camels that now belong to role-playing squirrels? Greetings, and welcome into the Patuxet General. I am your host, Jess. We have a delicious recipe for vegan pizza strips. So much information about gin, perhaps too much but with a tasty traditional finish. Also, an intriguing article written by one of our favorite writers and a dear friend about how the community's response to the Gatsby burning affected the discussion for independence. But first, we must thank our Patreon subscribers. These brave folk know what it makes the flag on the mast to wave. Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the Hottentot so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? And what do they got without Patreons that I don't got? Courage. So thank you. And if you have the courage, check out our Patreon page or simply follow the links in the show notes. But until then, are you hungry for pizza? Pizza strips were a tremendous hit at Little Falls. I made them every day and four times on Saturday for the farmer's market. Then one morning when they had just come out, a good friend came in and remarked on the smell. She said, I love pizza for breakfast, but I'm vegan. And it is quite true that I put a ton of Romano cheese in the red sauce, as mentioned in Chapter 60. I was stunned. It took me a second. Then I promised my pal that I would have something for her the next day. I thought about my favorite thing that was like pizza, but without cheese. Spinach pies, really well cooked down with black olives and tons of garlic, onions, and cracked red pepper. I love those things. But if I was going to make it into a pizza strip, I mean, command that same kind of devotion, not to put too fine a point on it, love, of the red strips, we would have to bump up this sauce a bunch, add a ton of flavor that was not cheese. This was difficult for me. I have a feeling for cheese. But after some work and a lot of reduction time, oh boy, did we have the answer. So dark, so dark on the pizza, it sometimes looks black. But I think I like these better than the red sauce. And for this sauce, you will need five pounds frozen chopped spinach, a handful of garlic cloves, chopped, one very large onion minced, one ounce cracked red pepper, two ounces Italian seasoning dried, three teaspoons salt, three teaspoons black pepper, one half cup sugar, one cup olive oil, four cups water, four cups olives, your choice. This recipe calls for sliced black olive rounds, but Kalamata are also lovely. One cup additional olive oil, some for the bottom of the sheet pans and the rest for the top. First, saute the onions and garlic and olive oil gently and only until they start to soften. Then, add all the frozen spinach and the rest of the ingredients. The water last, of course, withholding the extra olive oil. This simmers uncovered on medium heat until it reduces and starts to sizzle a tiny bit at the bottom. Stirring is key. When this is done, remove from the heat and let cool before putting on your pizza dough which should rise for about half an hour on the sheet pan covered with a few tablespoons of olive oil. Put the topping all the way to the edge, then pop into a 400-degree oven for about 20 minutes or until lightly browned around the edge. 
Remove it from the oven, and while it is still piping hot, drizzle the olive oil all over the pizza and let it absorb while it cools. Then, cut into either 3 by 9 inch rectangles or 3 by 3 inch squares for serving. These pair nicely with beer, a martini, or a gin and tonic. They are zesty, sweet, a little salty, garlicky, and I can't just eat one. So enjoy your green vegan pizza strips, and maybe I'll make mine. This just in. For the recipe for pizza dough, check out episode 60, or make your own, or even store-bought is okay. Enjoy. Having found difficulty moving himself, Samuel Pepys said in his journal on Saturday, October 10th, 1663, that Sir J. Minns and Sir W. Batten sent his lady to get some strong water made of juniper. Whether that or anything else of my draft this morning did, I cannot tell. But I had a couple of stools forced after it and did break a fart or two. And he wasn't the only one. Folks use juniper in an attempt to cure arthritis, diabetes, and as well as antiseptic and the aforementioned diuretic. As you can see, people have been using juniper for a host of reasons long before we sat on restaurant decks or back steps sipping on cooling gin and tonics. For another look at gin, I tapped the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they say, The name of the beverage comes from the French name for the juniper berry, Genevre, altered by the Dutch to Genever, shortened by the English to gin. Its origin is attributed to Franciscus Silvius, a 17th century professor of medicine at the University of Leiden in Holland who distilled the juniper berry with spirits to produce an inexpensive medicine having the diuretic properties of the juniper berry oil. The beverage became popular and was introduced to England by soldiers returning from the Low Countries, and in the 18th century, excessive consumption of this inexpensive beverage presented a social problem, as depicted in William Hogroth's engraving Gin Lane. Netherland gins are made from a mash containing barley malt fermented to make beer. The beer is distilled, producing spirits called malt wine, with a 50 to 55% alcohol content by volume. This product is distilled again with juniper berries and other botanicals, producing a final product having alcohol content of about 35%. English and American gins are distilled from malt wine purified to produce an almost neutral spirit without flavor or aroma, having alcohol content about 90 to 94% by volume. American gins are distilled from malt wine purified to produce an almost neutral spirit without flavor or aroma, having an alcohol content of about 90 to 94% by volume. This is reduced with distilled water combined with the flavoring agents and distilled and reduced again, producing a final product of 40 to 47 percent alcoholic content. The dry gins have more added flavoring ingredients than the Dutch types. Each producer employs a secret formula, including, in addition to the juniper berries, combinations of such botanicals as orris, angelica, and licorice roots, lemon and orange peels, cassia bark, caraway, coriander, cardamom, anise, and fennel. 
Dutch gins, too distinctive in taste to combine well with other beverages, are usually served unmixed or with water. The drier types, sometimes called London dry, may be served unmixed or may be combined with the other ingredients to make such cocktails as the martini and gimlet, such long drinks as the Tom Collins and the gin and tonic. For an interesting addition to any stirred-up curiosity you may have about gin, also check out Tasting History with Max Miller, The London Gin Craze and Beyond. It's enough to make you thirsty. But I like a dry tangeray, two and a half ounces, ice, half a lime squeezed into a tall glass and topped with a good tonic. And I'm assured to stave off malaria and scurvy. So enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. Today's article, clergy and press reaction to the Gatsby burning helped generate support for American independence by Francis Sagerson originally appeared as the Gatsby Program background material in the 1978 Gatsby Days Souvenir Program. Human rights are an important issue in 1978 America, but no more so than they were in 1772. Intense concern for human rights, in fact, was what brought the Rhode Island colonists together to keep the Gatsby Raiders from being sent to Britain to be tried for treason. Perhaps more than any other single incident, the burning of the Gatsby demonstrated to the colonists the dangers of continuing as British colonies. It spurred them on to endorse efforts to form an American government of their own. Four short years after the Gatsby incident, on July 4, 1776, that new nation was born. The burning of the HMS Gatsby was a bold act. Despite the Rhode Island colony's near total dependence on maritime trade for supplies and livelihood, despite the hatred of the British revenue, tax collecting, and the ships, many Rhode Island merchants and seamen were glad to have the protection of the British ships as they crossed the oceans. The names of the Gatsby Raiders, however, were never revealed until 1839, when the last of them lay on his deathbed. The British Crown's attempt to deny the Gatsby Raiders the basic rights guaranteed in the Magna Carta generated the colonists' zealous withholding of those names from the British government. It also helped spread support for the Raiders and ultimately for the American Revolution. In 1772, British law included a Dockyards Act, giving the king the right to decide where a trial on charges of treason would take place. There existed the distinct possibility that the raiders might be taken to England and tried on treason charges. Americans today are probably more familiar with cases in which it is the accused who asks for a change of venue to guarantee a jury more impartial than the one where the alleged incident took place. But the possibility of a treason trial in England for the Gatsby Raiders accounts for the climate of suspicion, obstruction, and noncompliance in which the Gatsby inquiry found itself. Says the revised edition of the documentary history of the destruction of the Gatsby by William R. Staples, first published in 1845. 
The colonial clergy and press were largely responsible for generating a climate of non-compliance with the British inquiry, which followed the burning of the Gaspee. Before the end of 1772, a Boston preacher, John Allen, delivered a sermon calling the new courts of admiralty created to appoint and order the inhabitants to be confined and dragged away from their families, from their laws, rights, and liberties to be tried by their enemies in unprecedented cruelty and justice and barbarity. The Committee of Correspondence of the Boston Town Meeting drew up a list of infringements and violations depriving colonials the right to trial by jury and taking them to England for trial. Both the preacher's remarks and the Boston Committee's list were widely reported in colonial newspapers. Soon, the newspapers said that the transportation to England had been planned so that these devoted persons be tried for high treason. They called the Gaspy Inquiry an alarming Star Chamber Inquisition and a court of inquisition more horrible than Spain or Portugal. The press called the powers of the Commission of Inquiry novel, unconstitutional, and exorbitant, and the whole inquiry shocking to humanity, repugnant to every dictate of reason, liberty, and justice, and in which Americans and freemen ought never to acquiesce. The actions of the Commission of Inquiry apparently were in sharp conflict with Rhode Island law, passed in 1664, which guaranteed that no freeman of the colony could be tried except by his peers in the laws of the colony. Such indictments of the commission surely served to solidify resentment against the British. The Providence Gazette of December 26, 1772, said in an editorial that the trial in Great Britain would be an open violation of the Magna Carta in foundation with British law since the Middle Ages, which guaranteed trial by one's peers. In January 1772, the Gazette called attention to two resolutions of the Rhode Island General Assembly enacted four years earlier, which said, All trials for treason, felony, or any crimes committed within the colony by its residents would be held within the colony. Failure to do so, the Assembly had resolved, would be highly derogatory of the rights of the British subject. The residents of Rhode Island, especially the residents of Patuxent Village, who would become involved in the aftermath of the incident off their port, had no advance warning, no chance to prepare for their role in the Gaspy incident. Yet the Gaspy Raiders were never named, never arrested, never brought to trial. As if struck dumb, no colonist would come forward to the inquiry to name those who had destroyed the British revenue ship. With the burning of the HMS Gaspy and the actions of the British inquiry which followed, an uninvolved group of ordinary Rhode Island colonists learned that their own basic human rights, the guarantees that they had assumed that they had had through the Magna Carta, were under serious threat from the British government. Thank you once again for joining us at the PG. I hope that you had fun here today. And if you have any questions, suggestions, orders, or ghost stories, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>